Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Game Talk Radio. I'm Greg. You're the listeners. Hope you're having a great day. I'm doing good. Got a couple things to talk about today. Got my exciting trip coming up next week. I'm going to Ireland. Never been, so we'll see how that goes. Not a fan of flying, unfortunately, <laughs> which uh, is inconvenient when you're trying to visit an island that's really far away. Uh, but uh, so I, I'm not sure if I'm going to have a podcast next week. And if I don't have one next week, I'll miss uh, the next week after that. But I should be back after that. So I don't think I'm going to miss more than two weeks. Okay. And I know all you listeners out there, I know your lives depend on hearing this podcast every week. Your whole week shot to hell if you don't get a little a little piece of the old Greggy every week. But I'm just saying it's going to be a couple weeks. And so I'm going to try to do one next week. The thing that sucks is to get this trip, I'm working almost every day up to it. So I'm working Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And I'm working the whole thing uh, to build that up. So it's just, you know, it's how it goes. And so unfortunately, like the day that I leave, I could probably get up and do the podcast. But I also have to get up and I have to do the morning, the, I have to do the Madden matchup thing, the Madden football simulation for the local sports radio show. So I got to be on the radio for that. And I just have all the things I have to do. So I want to get it all done, but I also have to, you know, pack and actually make sure I have all my things that I need. Um, but whatever, that's not your problem. That's my problem. That's, that's, that's an MP, not a YP. That's, that's what we say. That's not a, that's a, my problem, not a, your problem. Uh, so I'm just letting you know if there aren't any podcasts for the next few weeks, that's why I haven't gone anywhere. You know, uh, I will miss it immensely. And then when I get back, we will have an epic conversation about my game store hunting in Ireland, which uh, I'm just gonna safely assume is not gonna go great. <laughs> I mean, it's I I can't imagine that uh, that it's great. Um, why well, I keep peeking here? Sorry if I'm blasting on anyone's ears. I'm peeking into the red, and I don't I don't feel like I'm going above my normal volume, so I'm trying to adjust the mic placement. And uh, yeah, so that should be that should be pretty good. Um, so we have two stories we want to talk about today. One, we're gonna talk a little bit about GameStop, which I've I've been neglecting them. You know, I was going to talk about it last week, but we had the Billy Mitchell thing, had to had to dip back in. So we got GameStop talk. Uh, one, a couple weeks ago, they talked about closing 200 stores. I got to get on that story. And then we're going to talk a little bit about their financial situations and uh, a video leaked of one of their stores, one of their um, prototype stores or one of their demo stores, which is something GameStop does a lot. They uh, they make like these one-off, these one-shoots, uh, one-offs stores where they just like, it's a concept basically, and they bring this concept to life. And, uh, oh my goodness, I need to get some grease for that squeaky arm. Uh, and so it's just a concept store. So we have actually one of the managers did like a full video walkthrough of it. So we'll, we'll walk through that. There's some interesting stuff there. And then the second one, actually, this propped up just yesterday. And it was really frustrating for me. Uh, I had to bash my head against the wall. We're going to talk about Hideo Kojima, who is the creator of Metal Gear. And obviously one of my favorite game series of all times. He's probably my favorite game developer of all time. But he came out with some tweets on his English account, and he got a whole bunch of flack for it. And it, some some really, it, it's weird, like this this mob mentality when one person comes out against somebody, all of a sudden thousands of people rally behind this person without understanding anything about the situation or even trying to understand what actually happened. So we have a situation of that we're going to talk about. So Hideo Kojima and the the Twitter tirade against him. 
And those are the two stories. I, of course, have my pickup pile of the week, which is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight games high. I have my game of the week picked out. Uh, and I have an extra special. I have another comic book for the, uh, I have another comic book for the, uh, for the pickup pile of the week this week. So that that's, and it's, it's a, it's a great one. So a big one for the collection must have, uh, yeah. And so with that, we're going to get this show on the road people. And, uh, we're going to begin talking about GameStop. So first up on the podcast today, like I said, we're going to be talking about GameStop, and I've been neglecting them a little bit, as I said earlier, because there were a few stories. One, obviously, the financial call a few weeks ago, the the quarter two stuff, where it was basically all hell broke loose. And, and it's it's interesting because if you read the headlines, here's what you read. And I've had customers stop into the store and just say this too, and it, it I love it, right? I've got very loyal, great customers, you know, and they'll come in and they're looking for like like they assume I just hate GameStop because they're a competitor, right? Which obviously I worked there for a long time. I have a certain love for the company and I have a certain hatred for the company, a little bit of both. But ultimately, I don't want to see a company that employs a bunch of people go out of business, especially one that's in our industry, one that that helps, you know, it's the largest video game retailer in the whole world so we won't want them to fail if we want video games to be more successful i think they help video games be more successful and that's arguable i know with things like their used program over new games and stuff like that but i'm just saying i think in general it helps in fact i think it helps my small town because it brings a bunch of games into town that people buy and then eventually those get sold to my store and i get to resell them and make money so i think there is some value to gamestop as a brand i think it's there um so all the headlines came out. All the headlines were GameStop's closing. Here it is. GameStop's closing 200 stores. 200 stores. Oh, my gosh. It's over. Everybody pack it up and go home. GameStop's done. Well, not really. Because 200 stores in the grand scheme of things. I mean, worldwide, what do they have? I don't know, six to 10,000 stores or something somewhere in there. 200's nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. It's obviously not good to shut down 200 stores unless you're consolidating, right? And a lot of people may not know the history of this, but I actually lived through it. I was working as a GameStop manager, area manager at the time. And so GameStop bought Funko Land. And so they instantly had a huge influx of new stores, rebranded everything, everything was fine. Not long after, GameStop then purchased EB Games. Now it was sold as a merger, but it wasn't a merger. It was one company with money buying a company with no money. It's just, but for a, for employees sake, they said it was a merger so that the EB employees didn't feel crappy. And so that the GameStop employees didn't feel, uh, bragging and, and like they were winners, uh, in, in some sort of stupid battle. Um, which is funny, uh, just a quick side note. I always felt that way. Like it was difficult for me to get over that. I always felt the EB in my town was a competitor of mine. So when we merged, I kind of hated them because they were uh, the enemy, you know, of my business. And obviously now that's silly. Uh, but that's how you feel at the time. So it does take some, some time to get over that. However, uh, so after buying EB games though, they grew exponentially overnight. And so you had all these locations, you had sometimes three or four stores in a four block radius, two block radius. I know there was one in, in area in Milwaukee where there were two stores in a strip center, like two next to each other. And then one in a mall that was right outside the strip center. So you had three stores all within walking distance of each other. It's crazy. So obviously things there need to change. And over the years they've, they've taken stores out. They've 
set stores up in far out regions. Like around my area, they put a store in Shawano and they put one way up north in Marinette and they put one in other places, right? So the idea was let's branch out. Let's let's stop being clumped up. Let's branch out. And it worked in some cases and it didn't work in others. Shawano's already closed. The De Pere GameStop's already closed uh, after a few years. And, and so not, not everyone was successful and that's fine. You know, that's, that's, that's business. You don't know if an area is going to be successful until you try usually. Um, so the closing the 200 stores thing isn't a big deal. Now, obviously you'd like to close 200 stores and then have the other side be, but we're opening 200 other stores or something to balance it all out. But that's not really the case. We know that GameStop is having financial trouble. Like that's not in dispute. And, and I, and I don't think anyone's going to make that claim. However, this thought of they're dead in the water and they're out and they're gone is so far from accurate, you know? And yes, when you see that, that quarter two call, it is like dismal. <laughs> I mean, it, it is, it is not a good look for them. It is not good for them. It, you know, it, you'd want your earning report to be like, we made $400 million, not lost $400 million. But a lot of people don't really understand how this works in reporting, right? So when they say, and this is the article says right here, GameStop will close as many 200 stores by the end of 2019 following another quarter of sharply declining sales and a $415 million loss. So what you have to understand, though, is that $415 million loss isn't necessarily like the company lost $400 million. And I know it sounds really dumb, right? Because you're like, this is literally what the article says. Is they, it says they lost they, they, they had a quarter with a $450 million loss. Well, oftentimes that loss is just what's reported between what they expected to gain and what they actually gained. So it's not really a loss. It's a loss to stockholders, right? It's a loss to investors because investors thought they were going to get X and they were given Y. So that loss is what's in between X and Y, but that loss doesn't mean that they gave, that they had $415 million in the bank today and tomorrow they have zero. That's not how it works, right? So that's the first thing you have to understand. Uh, these 200 stores, it's not great. And obviously before this, we had the layoffs at Game Informer, layoffs at corporate, like 14%, I think, of corporate staff was laid off. And so what a lot of people don't realize about GameStop is that any company that grows as big as they did as quickly as they did is going to have growing pains and they're going to be bloated very quickly. That's the problem. Middle management and the middle of the company is always what gets bloated very quickly. So that's what they're dealing with right now. They have a, they have a bloated corporate staff. They can trim that down. They have bloated middle management, uh, regional directors, district managers. They shaved that down uh, right the week, right before conference there. And so, all that is part of the, the the thinning of the herd, essentially, but that's because they were artificially bloated because of their quick growth. Because when you're growing quick and you've got all this money, you're like, well, we, we might be adding a thousand more stores. We got to add new regionals. We got to add new district managers to prepare for that. Well, then that doesn't end up happening. Well, now you've still got all these extra employees. And when the company's doing fine, you keep them, you find work for them to do. And then eventually you say, well, now I have to find a home for them somewhere. And usually that doesn't have a place when you don't have any money. So then they're the first ones to go. And so, uh, you know, I just want to emphasize kind of what these things mean. Um, also, there's a whole thing. I don't understand it fully, so I'm not going to dribble it out here to you and try to understand it. But there's also things like they've been writing off a lot of goodwill, which is a non-tangible asset. And so they've been writing off losses typically of things that they tried that weren't successful, purchasing certain companies, cricket, 
purchasing other things, you know, trying other things that didn't work out, they're writing those off. And that's why they look like such huge losses. There's not a lot more to write off like that for them. And in fact, they've got something like one, the, I think the total is 1.6 billion in cash. Now, when they say cash, it's not dollar bills cash. Uh, about a billion of that is inventory, but $600 million in the bank, you know? And so it's not like, I, I want to say they have enough money to buy their stock over a few times, actually. Like they could buy, they, GameStop could buy themselves back from themselves if they wanted to. And sometimes companies do that. Companies will do stock buybacks as a way to to boost the stock price a little bit and to uh, kind of tighten up the market if they feel like their stock is undervalued. It's, they can buy it back themselves and then more people start investing in them because the stock price starts going up. And then, you know, it's all actually it's all quite manipulative, to be honest. And I, I'm not a huge fan of I'm not the hugest fan of the stock market. I feel like there's so many outside factors that have nothing to do with the success of a company that can make it. Um, when EB Games was bought by GameStop, their stock was about twice worth twice as much as GameStop's. And so they had ways of making their stock and making their company look good to investors and they were losing money every month, you know? And so the stock market is not always indicative of success. Um, GameStop stock for years has been in the toilet. Even when they were a successful company putting money in the bank and, and everything, their stock was always going down because everyone kept anticipating the future, you know, and let's anticipate the future loss of GameStop. They've been claiming that GameStop's going to go out of business since 2005, or earlier. I mean, when I was there, it was every every article was, oh, the, this could be the year. Whoo, shunny. This could be the year when GameStop's finally out. And that was 14 years ago. So, you know, it's just it's just always funny to me, right? So these articles, this isn't wrong information. We just have to understand the information and process it properly, right? So now what I will say about the 200 stores closing, though, is there was uh, there was another headline. Let me see if I have it here. I thought I had a picture of it. Um, there was another headline that said that that follows up to the 200 stores. Everybody focused on the 200 stores thing. Everybody, but they really missed the next statement. And and unfortunately, I don't have it here in front of me. I thought I did. But basically, the statement said something along along the lines of not only are we closing 180 to 200 stores, which I mean. It also, that's what they said, 180 or 170 to 200 stores. And everyone just goes, 200 stores. <laughs> you know, whatever, fine. Got to get your headlines in. Got to get your clicks. We get it. But it says something along the lines of, we're also reevaluating the metrics for what we consider a successful store for the stores we're going to be closing over the next 12 to 24 months. And that's a bigger thing to me. And that's what everyone glossed over. Nobody said anything about that. You look at all the articles, 200 stores closing. But what nobody nobody talked about was them changing their metrics for what's a successful store and how many stores will they close in the next two years. That's more interesting to me because GameStop's a very interesting company, depending on what you or do or do not know about them. When I worked at GameStop, they had metrics that they tracked every single day, every single week, every single month. And these were metrics you were ranked against all the other stores in the company every single week. You were giving your rating and your rank in the company compared to other stores, which I always had a top performing store. It was nice for me. A lot of managers always had bottom performing stores. I assume it was not nice for them to hear this, but every single week it's bashed into your head and they would make slight tweaks and changes to the formula over the years. But key things, always pre-orders. Pre-orders were always like the number one thing. You had to get pre-orders. Subscriptions to Game Informed Magazine. You had to sell subscriptions to Game Informed Magazine. Those two things. 
you had to do. And then, of course, there was uh, comp sales to last year, so how well your store did compared to the that week the year before. And then, like, used game sales were worked in and something called initially MSTs, then UPTs, then, I don't know, IPTs, whatever. Basically, it stands for how many items you were selling per transaction. The idea was, are you getting add-on sales? Are you recommending products to people? And so... These were all things that over the years they would change the weight of which category was the most important, but ultimately they were all important for giving you this almighty rank, whatever you had. And so they're thinking, they're reevaluating those metrics. So does that mean they're not going to care as much about physical pre-orders? Because let's be honest, of course physical game sales are in decline. Like, of course, I'm seeing that with the Switch especially, is we haven't been seeing as many used games come in because it's a portable system, first of all, but it's also easily accessed for digital games and the storage is cheap. So a lot of people are just buying the games digitally. So I think at any given time, we might have 20 Switch games in stock at the store. After a system that's been out for two and a half years, we should have a much larger section than that. It was the same thing with PS4 when that first came out. The first year or two, very little PS4 software. Now we're getting quite a bit more, um, you know, as the, as the cycle of this console winds down. Uh, so they're changing the metrics though, for what makes those stores successful. So are they going to get away from pre-orders because let's, yeah, the new game sales aren't what's carrying this business. Although the new game sales, the whole point of that is to bring people's trades in <laughs> and then you make money on the trades. That's essentially what, what the business model is there, but, uh, no more pre-orders. Are they going to stop caring about subscriptions to game Informer magazine? I mean, that always seems like a massive, massive, massive waste of or or a, a not a waste sorry a massive uh wrongfully way of judging a store's success is how many of a magazine they can sell okay and yes it all comes down to you get the discount card with it which i think is going away i don't know i, I, I keep they keep changing it but i think the 10 percent's going away but originally you would sell it as a 10 percent discount card with a free magazine because nobody wanted the magazine i'm sorry to say it game informer fans i'm sorry most people don't want the magazine. They want the discount card, but they'll take the magazine if you give it to them for free. So you've got that. Uh, and so maybe they won't care so much about Game Informer subscriptions because that doesn't matter as much. But what I think they're going to start doing is they're going to look at pure profitability because I know stores, okay, when, when the De Pere store was open, I was always co internally competing against them. Obviously, we're the same company, but I worked at the Mason Street GameStop in Green Bay, and there was the De Pere store. The De Pere store destroyed everybody in pre-orders. Like, they just, they had, they weren't super busy, so they could talk to people about games all day long. They got tons of pre-orders, and they killed it every single week in pre-orders. But that store like was never profitable because they you don't make any money on new games. New games, the, the margins are so thin that if all you do is sell new games and you don't bring in good used product and sell used product, it's not good. And 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 that and that store didn't do that. It didn't. It was in a weird part of town. Actually, it was like a richer part of De Pere, more industrial part of De Pere, uh, where they didn't they wanted new stuff. In fact, the Walmart that it was next to doesn't even do that great because it's you know people were like, well, I don't want to go to Walmart. I'll go to Target instead. Or you know, pinky in the air or whatever, you know, like we're rich. We don't go to Walmart. You know, we don't want used games. We want new games. So it did well. It sold tons of new games out pre-ordered half the stores in the district that never made them profitable. And so they're going to change the metrics on what's a profitable store, looking at more things like used game sales and comps to last year, like that stuff should all matter. So it's going to be really interesting to see though, in the next two years, which stores were actually profitable. And they're going to look at stores that have really high rent and don't, and squeak by with 
not very much profit and they're probably going to close them or they're going to move them into a, a different location with cheaper rent and they're just going to be smarter about it. When GameStop was expanding, they were growing so quickly, there wasn't a lot of time to think about this stuff. You know, I mean, th I mean, there was literally a job, okay, and I actually almost applied for it a few times. There was a job at corporate that was called SOC. It stood for Store Opening Coordinator. And I know they still exist at some, in some regard. But there was literally five or six people that were hired just to go to new towns every week and open new stores. That's how many new stores they were opening. Every single week, there were like five new stores opening. It's crazy. It's crazy the growth that was happening there. And we had it down to a science. And let me tell you, like they would come in on a Monday. All the product would come in. The shelving would come in. That store was open by Thursday night. Yeah, it was incredible. You started with a blank slate Monday morning and you had a full stocked and staffed store on Thursday night. It, it was cool. It was actually really cool to see like from start to finish. Uh, I did a lot of them, actually. I, I did a lot of new store opens. And then I would manage them for a month, and then they'd say, hey, Greg, we need you back at this other store because they suck, and then we're going to give a young manager this nice, fresh, fancy new store, and you get to go back to this dump <laughs> that needs help with terrible employees, and uh, and then uh, we need you to fix it. And that was okay. I liked that to an extent. It was nice to finally have a home store when I had Mason Street. It was like my retirement store. Like I went there, I built a staff, and I got to keep my staff. Didn't always have to move around and and everything. Um, so, so that's just some of the more interesting things. So I know everyone's focusing on the 200 stores closing, but it's more interesting to me, the, 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 what, how they're going to change, how they close stores in the next two years, because clearly they're saying they're closing more stores. They just have to figure out how they're going to do it. And they're going to reevaluate that. Um, and so there, and so, you know, how does GameStop pull out of this, right? How, how does GameStop turn it on? And I'm, I'm a firm believer that any company can turn it around. Uh, Best Buy was able to turn it around. They were circling the drain, not 10 years ago, you know, and they pulled it on and they're doing great they're, they've, they've, they've corrected and they're fine. Circuit city. They didn't, <laughs> they didn't correct. They're not fine. Uh, you know, blockbuster didn't correct. <laughs> they're, they're, uh, they're not fine, but it's possible. I think it's always possible, and I totally think it's possible for GameStop. They, for the most part, have about a 50% positive rating with people, <laughs> you know, for the most part. Um, some of it warranted, some of it uh, Nickelback levels of just hating them, just to hate them because the Internet says so. But they have the opportunity, so they're trying some unique things. Uh, I was able to, I actually opened uh, what we called them prototype stores back then, but it's a concept store. And I opened a concept store actually in Appleton. It was on College Ave. It was the really big one. It was actually its own building. It was the only GameStop I'd ever seen that was its own building. It was an old Payless shoe store that GameStop made a deal and bought a bunch of locations and opened it up. The store was huge. It was probably about five times as big as your average GameStop store. It was incredible. My store, like if you've been to my store, it was probably probably four times bigger than three or four times bigger than my store. It was huge. It was awesome. And so you had this massive store and like you had room to do things. You were never crammed for room like you were at the mall stores and stuff like that. Um, unfortunately, GameStop really did anything with that. Like we had room to have some really cool stuff. We could have done tournaments. We could have done other things. We just didn't really, they don't, they didn't have that initiative at that time. So there's some concept stores and I'm going to flip over to this video here. And, and, uh, I, for the podcast listeners, I'm probably just going to play the video and then let you listen. Um, and I'll try to describe things as we go. But basically this was, a, must've been a store manager of a store that had just been, closed and then reopened as a concept store and this concept store had some interesting things. so i'm going to play this video and then we're going to kind of pause it and chit chat as we go
don't know if anyone's talking in this video, but basically, um, he, he he's doing like a uh, he's going back and forth. Yeah, you know what? I think that, I know there's audio here. Let me back this up. Let me back this up and figure out why it's not picking up any audio. Probably because it's not on that. You know what? I'm not gonna play with it. But in any case, sorry. So there's no audio. So forgive me on that. But podcast listeners, I'll kind of describe what's going on. So you walk into the store. It looks like your typical, like it's a long GameStop, right? You walk in. It's a short entrance, long, deep store in the back, like a mall store. Uh, you walk in. The first thing you see is a couch and a big screen TV on the left side. And on the right side, you've got clothing racks and shirts. You've got LCD TVs on the wall on the right side. And very few games is what I'm noticing here. This actually, like there seems to be less product here and more extracurricular stuff and so as we walk by actually it looks a lot like a cell phone store um they've got like storage cabinets underneath product uh and then in the back they're walking through the back right now and there's this like gaming lounge and there's like six tvs six old big crt tvs four big crt tvs set up just for playing retro games on like there's a 64 hooked up an xbox and some other stuff so basically there's a lounge and they sell snacks and stuff and they're trying to make it like a gamer hangout, I guess. And this is really weird to me because while I think it's cool from the aspect of them trying to do more, I don't understand how this generates more money for them. They're they're literally taking 30% of the sales floor and dedicating it to people playing video games for free. So I don't know how this generates the kind of money that that store needs to make because you've taken all the floor space away from these games. And while it looks really nice, it's clean, it's really nice look. I right, will close. Oh, that's why, because I muted that tab. That's that's why. Well, that's good. I muted it because it started autoplaying another video. So uh, I muted the tab so that I wouldn't hear stupid Facebook dings coming through. Um, so I don't understand how they make their money back on that, though. And if that somehow promotes... Like they're going to sell snacks, but you're never going to sell enough snacks in a day to make up for the wall space that you could have had games faced out. GameStop's own internal research shows that faced out games sell better than bookended games by like three or four to one. And so how how they're taking all their games, bookending them just so they can have these TVs in the back. It looks cool. I'm not going to say it doesn't look cool. It looks like a cool place to hang out. Is that going to produce long term as a hangout spot? Is that going to produce long term revenue uh from repeat business i don't see it i mean there's a reason why in my store i mean people all the time say oh you should have like a tv and some games set up to play and i'm like well if i if i set that up i don't know i don't know where i would put that first of all i need to have my product on the shelf that's the most important thing and two do i want a bunch of people hanging out for hours on end stinking up the joint being loud and obnoxious while playing games ruining the experience of other shoppers I don't know. It's it's difficult. It's it, it's a difficult balance. Like I consider myself very customer friendly store, but we have to be friendly to all customers, including moms, grandmas, other people that might not be super comfortable in our store. And part of doing that, I think, is not having people hang out in the store all day because. Uh, you see this a lot. I know I've quoted this before on the podcast. I haven't watched it in a while, actually, but uh, one of my favorite shows is Bar Rescue. And, you know, one of the things they'll talk about, they'll go into a bar and they'll have these regulars and they don't want to change anything because they don't want to scare away the regulars. But what's actually happening is the regulars are scaring away the new customers. So you're not making any money because you're so concerned about these 
five people that come every week, you don't care about the 40 people that they've scared away over the years because they were the weird guy at the end of the counter or because you don't want to change your drinks to be more modern because that guy doesn't like it or girl doesn't like it. And so all in all, GameStop is in a unique place right now where they have to make a change. They have to pivot. Are they going to? You never know. The people running the company now, um, excuse me, the people running the company now are not really from the industry. And uh, so I don't know how that translates to games. This has always been one of those unique industries where it's different and it's growing and people like the norms are shattered in this industry often. So when you have someone new come from external hires, you never know how they're going to be able to understand this business. It's different. And I remember when I was at GameStop and they talked about how, oh, you know, our, our digital marketing team, we brought in an XVP from Playboy Online and he's going to help us get our online presence started. And you're like, okay, but do they know anything about video games? I mean, like that's the, and not that everyone needs to know everything about video games at the corporate level. You just really know how to manage people. An, an understanding of the industry helps, I think. And so it'll be interesting to see where they go. And then the last thing I want to show is I had to talk about this because uh, this was like a breakdown that IGN did. And I just got to play this for you. It's pretty stupid, <laughs> but we're going to, we're going to play it for you. And so have a listen to this and I'm going to pause it and kind of pick this apart as we go. But anyway, this was IGN reporting on the GameStop woes. This actually just came out like yesterday. If it's going to load, if the video is going to load, we hear. <laughs> well, hey, live podcast for y'all. I guess it's just not going to play. Well, that's interesting, man. Okay. Uh, let's load it back up here, I guess. Come on. All right. There it is. GameStop has been playing on hard mode these past few years. <laughs> what? Dude, that's how he starts it off. GameStop's been playing on hard mode these last few years. Like, could you be any more, like, unprofessional? Could you be any more stupid? Like, who are you Who are you trying to tell a story to? Do you not care at all about being accurate or professional or anything no GameStop's been playing on hard mode the last few years this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard like it's it's just incredible here we go again GameStop has been playing on hard mode these past few years and it's 2018 fiscal year results and, and okay just for the people listening I know people watching this the people listening so there's a filter on this video that makes it look like a VHS tape. It's got the date in the corner and then it's just like a, and then the dude's wearing a shirt that just says game scoop <laughs> with an exclamation point in a video game font. Anyway, sorry, good. But it's like, why, why the VHS filter? Like, are we not adults living in 2019? This, we have to do this to show that it's all about retro games. The company reported the biggest loss in its history, $673 million. The company was looking for someone to buy it late last year, but gave up the search in early 2019. Sales are still trending. So they gloss over that. They don't talk about why the search was given up. They don't talk about anything about that. Just it was given up. Trending down in the first quarter of its current fiscal year. New hardware sales are down 35%. New Okay, sorry, I'm gonna let this finish, then I gotta talk about this. Software sales down 4.3%, and pre-owned hardware and software was down 20%. So 
so while he's saying the numbers there, like this was down this percent. This, there's literally uh, uh, like a half opacity behind him, like generic clip art uh, stock thing with the arrow going down. And it's like moving as he's talking. It's so stupid. This editing is just beyond stupid. So what is a struggling video game retailer to do? It isn't ready to give up the ghost just yet and just announced a partnership with a design firm to create unique in-store experiences and new locations dedicated to retro gaming. Now this is a little weird, but GameStop says it has conducted its own research to identify, quote, four major motivations gaming fans have for playing. So GameStop did research to identify four the four things that make up like what gamers want essentially. So and and, and I will get into it when they talk about it, but here here we go video games. Your motivations are, apparently, immersion, achievement, creativity, and community. Yeah, I mean, that's accurate, actually. Like, that's really good. That's really good research. That's like a, a really business, a business, business-fied way of saying that, yeah, like, this is what essentially people who play video games want out of their games. One of those four things. I mean, that covers pretty much everything. According to its research, quote, video games are no longer just a form of entertainment, but are a fundamental part of the fabric of a modern customer's life. This consumer believes gaming is the most immersive, most challenging, most creative, and most inclusive form of entertainment and vibrant storytelling available, mm -hmm. and in many cases, is an important facet of their identity. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, uh, it, it's weird hearing people talk about video games and video gaming culture uh, from a corporate level, but this is it. I mean, this is not inaccurate. This is actually quite accurate. Now, GameStop is using this information to try and entice you back to its existing and forthcoming retail locations. The company is, quote, introducing new ways for gamers. Every time he says that, the company is, quote, the company is, quote. It's like, just say it, dude. I'm talking, and here's the company, quote, you know, quote. I'm 40 years old, gray hair, dude, but hey, I'm giving stories a unique layout and purpose that appeal to gamers. One of its new initiatives will be locations that strictly sell retro games and hardware. So maybe your local GameStop will become the place to go to pick up a TurboGrafx-16 or a copy of Sewer Shark for Sega CD. GameStop also wants to host its own local esports competitions. Its chief customer officer says this is all the next stage of the company's transformation and growth strategy. We don't know how many new stores GameStop plans to open or when they might start appearing. The company doesn't have all the time in the world. Would new retro stores and local esports events get you back to your local GameStop? Let me know in the comments and stay tuned for more from IGN. Okay, well, that that video's ass. <laughs> that video is just terrible. Um, but I know who IGN's appealing to in that, uh, but it, I, I, I despise that. I think that was just awful. But, you know, some of the points that they raise there, though, are kind of fair, uh, especially near the end there, you know, asking questions like, is carrying retro games and doing esports tournaments going to bring you back to GameStop. And I would say most people probably know, but GameStop needs to do something event-wise. Look at all the card shops, the local mom and pops, the card shops, all that stuff. They bring people in by doing those events. And now I don't do any events like that. I sponsor events like that and I help people who want to run a tournament, we sponsor it, you know, to get our name out there, but for the most part, we don't really do much with it. And, and we're still successful. You don't need, like a lot of these things are, 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 are gimmicks and band-aids. You know, it's not about how to short-term get people in the door. It's about how to long-term keep people coming in the door. And, you know, and I hate to keep going back to it, but one of the things they have an issue with right now is their brand. Uh, their brand name is suffering, right? And one of the things they're known for, and again, 
perception is reality when it comes to customers. Okay. And so what that means is it doesn't necessarily have to be true. It's what the customer thinks is true is it's going to get you in trouble. And the customers right now think that if you take a stack of games to GameStop, you're going to get ripped off. And sometimes rightfully so they think that because sometimes their trade prices are crazy. I literally look at their trade prices every single day at work because we use their trade prices as like our bouncing off point. Like if they sell a game for 20 bucks, we sell it for 14.99. And then if they're paying five bucks, we're paying six or seven. And so we're able to, we, we use their model and we use it against them really. Um, but I look at their numbers every day and sometimes I see a game, I kid you not, it was $34.99. They're paying $6 for a $35 game. So you can't argue that it's perception is reality when the reality is reality. They're paying $6 for a $35 game. So of course, if you go there and you sell your game for six bucks and then you come back a week later and you see it on the shelf for $34.99, of course you're gonna get pissed off and of course you're never gonna go back there again. I mean, that's what's killed them over the last 10 years is this weird, like, and they've never done anything to fight back against that. They've never, like they do trade bonuses sometimes and their trade deals can be really good when they do them, but that's not enough. Like it's, it's the perception that you're cheaper than everyone else in your buyback prices as opposed to your, and you're always more expensive in your selling prices. Like those two things that, that reputation is, will make you notorious and not, you know, not good. And so they need to fix that. And, and, uh, I guess it's not, it'd be fine if they don't, because I benefit from them failing in that regard, but it's just one of those things that it's easily fixable and they have to, they have to work on fixing their brand. Their brand used to be untouchable. It used to be the most recognizable, best brand in video games in the world. And now it's while still recognizable people off, I'd say easily 50% of people love it. 50% think they're going to get ripped off when they walk in the door. Whew, talking about GameStop sure gets me all fired up. Um, I didn't even talk about that. That's okay. I don't need to. Um, oh, I didn't talk about that either. <laughs> I had like three tabs I didn't talk about with GameStop stuff. Um, but basically, there's even like, uh, it's funny, you know, you listen to all these fly-by-night wannabe journalists talk about something, and then, and then uh, there's like investment bankers who are investing in GameStop right now. One guy's got $3 million in GameStop stock. Because he knows that that company's going to bounce back from that. Not that it's going to be good forever, but he knows that the five dollars stock price right now is temporary. He dropped three million in, double the price in a year, and then take six million out. It's not a bad. Uh, <laughs> that's not a bad profit margin. We'll take it. I thought about that even with them. Like I thought about dropping a thousand bucks on GameStop stock, even. And then I look at it and I go, well, I mean, even if I double up in a year. That's only a thousand bucks. It's not really worth it. I'd rather just have the thousand dollars on hand and not take the risk. Like it's not worth it for me. If I could pay a thousand dollars and have a chance for like a twenty thousand payoff in a couple years, I'd probably do it. But there's no way that stock's gonna go up to a hundred dollars a stock uh, share and go up twenty times. So yeah, it's not for me. Uh, and then uh, all right, cool. So the next we're gonna roll right into this. Uh, who's tweeting at me? Um. Anyway, uh, I'm gonna talk about this Hideo Kojima stuff, and this is kind of annoying that people are you know so brain dead half the time but uh all right we're gonna get started and uh here we go so next up on the podcast today we're talking about Hideo Kojima and he's got his new game coming out of course in November Death Stranding looks excellent uh I'm a Kojima fan so all, all things aside like yes this is probably gonna be a skewed perspective but I hope that anyone who's ever watched these videos before knows that I'm actually pretty level-headed when it comes to this stuff and I like to lay out all 
facets of a story. So, but with that being said, Metal Gear Solid is my favorite franchise, and I arguably Hideo Kojima is probably my favorite game designer. I like that he offers unique experiences and offers different gameplay elements in all of his games. You know, not everything's just a side-scrolling shooter or a top-down shooter. It's a top-down shooter with little mini games to prop up the fun. Obviously, you remember the things in Metal Gear Solid about Psycho Mantis and reading your memory card. Little cute little quirky things all the time. Um, in is it Metal Gear Solid? three i think there's like a vampire mini game where like you you know you're having like a dream sequence and so there's really cool stuff like that um and so i just like him as a game designer and i i I appreciate most game designers i guess just in general and so i guess it frustrates me a little bit when i see them being attacked and this really weird kojima hate's been popping up recently and i i noticed just a few people here and there like they're always knocking him for his epic storytelling or his the way he writes female characters and i'm not going to say he's like the stephen king of video games okay he's not writing these epic massively well done characters all the time i think some characters have great depth i think some don't (laughs) i think some female characters are brilliant and i think some are terrible uh just like any writer i assume would have good characters and bad Um, And so you see that a little bit. However, the other day, this tweet was tweeted by his English account. Now, if you don't know, there's Hideo Kojima's Twitter account, and then there's Hideo Kojima underscore EN. And that's basically an account that retweets his Japanese tweets in English, translated poorly, as we'll find out. But this tweet came out. A Hideo Kojima game means the declaration of me doing concept, produce, Original story, script, setting, game design, casting, dealing, directing, difficulty adjustments, promoting, visual design, editing, supervising the merch. So that's that. That's what the tweet is. Uh, followed up by saying, I don't name this for titles that I don't make original idea, game design, or produce. So that's the, you know, that's it, right? You're like, okay, it's, it's a tweet saying that uh, when he puts his name on, like anyone with normal reading comprehension, let's just say that, let's be honest. Anyone with normal reading comprehension reads that and goes, oh, What he's saying is anytime he puts his name on a game, it means that he worked on the story, the script, the setting, the design, the casting. He doesn't put his name on the box if he didn't have something to do with all of those things. Unless you're Jason Schreier (laughs) and some other unnamed person on Twitter who I swear I searched for the tweet for like a half hour to try to find it. But my eyes rolled back so far in my head when I saw it. It just it made my brain hurt. But Jason Schreier, you know, and and it's snarky. It's fine. We all like to be a little snarky on Twitter. But Jason Schreier tweets, retweets it and says, as we get closer and closer to launch, I just want to express my deepest gratitude for all the hard work and sacrifice put in by me, Hideo Kojima. And like, okay, but that's not really the whole point of this tweet. Like, it wasn't a brag. You know, It it was a declaration of if I work on a game, if I put my name on a game, I have an expectation of quality and I'll make sure that quality gets to you. It doesn't mean you're going to like it. And this game could be total shit. I, mean, I don't know. And I hope it's not. I hope it's great. And I hope all the people that um, you know, want to play it and like it, like it. And I hope all the people that don't want to like it, play it and like it too. I hope it's good. I hope people, I hope they get more money. I hope they make sequels. I hope Kojima makes money. I hope all the people working for him make more money. Who doesn't want that? Why We don't want people to fail. You shouldn't want people by default to lose and to fail. And if you want to argue that you want him to be more humble, that's fine, but not everybody's like that. I, it's just, sorry, not everybody is humble and quiet. Some people got to be braggarts and, and run around like, you know, like they're the king. Like they're the king stuff. Okay, 
I, not my style typically, but it is that's fine. And so this tweet, though, it frustrates me because he I think he knew like what was meant by this tweet. I don't see anybody could read this and instantly roll your eyes and be like, oh, you know, oh, there's, you know, Kojima acting like he does everything. I, I don't know how you read that from that. Unless you already have like a negative stigma attached to Kojima where you're just like, oh, I hate this guy. Oh, look at him here. He's saying he does everything. Eh, okay, I guess. So then, you know, there's, oh, funny, funny gifts. Oh, it's hilarious. Um, you know, people here say he states pretty clearly what he means by a Kojima game. Did you forget what happened when you wrote about Anthem and Mass Effect Andromeda? The lack of vision and decision making from leaders or why Metal Gear Rising initially failed? Why fault the guy for taking pride in his work? That's all he says. OK, that tweet there is not negative. OK, he states. I'm going to read it again. He states pretty clearly that he means by a Kojima game. Did you forget what happened when you wrote, talking about Jason Schreier, when you wrote about Anthem and Mass Effect Andromeda, the lack of vision and decision-making from leaders, or why Metal Gear Rising initially failed? Why fault the guy for taking pride in work? That's the tweet. To which Jason Schreier replies, It's amazing how defensive you and many others have gotten in reaction to some light mocking of a dude's ego. So now it's the, oh, it's a joke, bro. It's a joke, bro. <laughs> It was a joke, bruh. Okay, that that's that's a weak argument. Um, and then my favorite though is the reply here to him from someone else. It is because you're very unlikable. The stupid things you say make it irresistible for people to dunk on. <laughs> that's hilarious to me. But seriously, just a joke, bruh. Uh, hey man, I'm just it's just a joke, bruh. I I hate that. If you're gonna if you're gonna say something, stand by it. You, you want to believe in something, believe in it. Put your heart and soul into it. Stick by it. Don't claim this joke garbage later. And people, he's not defensive. This person's not defensive. I'm reading this. He's not defensive. He's he's literally saying, Jason Trier, remember when you did an article on these other two companies, these other two games? You say you said that there was a lack of leadership. People didn't have their hands on all the pieces, and the game suffered. This person, Hideo Kojima, comes on and says, I have my hand on all the pieces. When I put out a quality game, I want you to know it's quality because I had something to do with every facet of this game. Oh, what a, what an ego on that guy. Huh? Yeah, what an ego on that guy. Huh? Just joking, bro. Just joking, bro. Calm down, bro. Just joking, bro. Okay. So, so it, it there's just more of this crap. It goes on. Schreier pretty much noped out of the conversation. Um, so this guy says, I think he's just making a declaration to his fans that he's involved in all aspects of the game, a promise that you're getting his stamp on all these things. He's not saying he's the only one who made the game. To which Jason Schreier replies, that's fair. The use of a Hideo Kojima game directed by Hideo Kojima and Kojima Productions definitely didn't make that clear enough. It, it's like, I don't, where is he? Like, he's coming, like he's got some weird thing. I don't know what's going on. And I can't remember where it is. And, and so, like, here, he goes on to say, um, I'm not making fun of the practice of directors putting their name on work. I'm making fun of this absurd tweet. What's absurd about this tweet? There's nothing absurd here. A Hideo Kojima game means the declaration of me doing concept, produce, original story, script, setting, game design, casting, dealing, directing, difficulty, adjustment, managing, visual design, editing, supervising the merch. What's what's What is that that, like is so offensive to Jason Schreier. Why is that absurd? And I, and I don't remember where it was here. Um, 
Oh, right here. So this person goes, I can't imagine how irritating it must be to read this as an employee at Kojima Studio. They're Japanese, dipshit. They're not reading his English tweets. They're reading... <laughs> oh my God, I just... The stupidity. The stupidity. And then the reply... My first thought would be, hey, we should unionize. Jason Trier, come on, man. You know enough about the game industry. You know enough about J Japanese culture. You have a freaking Japanese segment on the website you write for. Talk to some of those people, maybe. In fact, your website, by the way, we'll be talking about in a minute, because Brian Ashcraft had something to say about how poorly these translated tweets are. And I'm still waiting for that Jason Schreier uh, apology or, or comeback. But he's just joking, bro. You don't got to apologize. It's just a joke. You got to apologize. You don't have to apologize if it's just a joke, right? Is that, is that how the world works, I think? Right? So, uh, but he goes on to say, my first thought would be, hey, we should unionize. First of all, do you know that they're not part of a union? Do you know that? Have you talked to any employees at Kojima Productions? I doubt it. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I know he listens to the podcast. I'm not just trying to squeak him off here. But uh, Michael from Retro Game Fix, Serial at Night podcast, look it up. He does great work when talking about the pros and cons of unionizing. And when you're in a creative field like this, you don't want to be unionizing. It pulls down your potential for when you're negotiating your contracts. Now, I'm not saying that no people should unionize, okay? So don't come at me as like an anti-union. I'm not anti-union at all. It's just some industries, it doesn't make sense. Now, I'd even go as far as to say QA people in the US, they probably should unionize because QA people are notoriously abused in the video game industry in this country. It's no question. It's no question. They're overworked, underpaid. I'm the first to say it. But to somehow argue that that's everybody who works in games is inaccurate. We don't know that they're overworked. We don't know what crunch is like at Kojima Productions. I can tell you one thing I do know. I know a bunch of people from Konami left to go work for him. A bunch of people were going to go, but were threatened that they wouldn't get their payouts since Konami didn't want them all to leave in droves. So what does that tell you when Konami, who's notoriously known for treating their employees pretty poorly, want to jump ship and go work for Hideo Kojima? You know, the, the assumptions made in here are, are mind boggling. And the fact that Schreier is just like, you know, I'm, I'm having, you know, I make this joke, but it's just a joke. Uh, but now it's but but yeah, I would I would say, uh, yeah, I should unionize. Yeah, <laughs> just it just doesn't make any sense because he understands a different in culture from there to here. OK, not everyone in the world is the same as us. I don't understand why he doesn't understand that. So to get to the larger point, since I've been jamming on about this for so long already here's the article that kotaku put up just yesterday so this is a day after the tweet hideo kojima's controversial tweets are different in japanese so his employees aren't reading the english tweets <laughs> they're reading the japanese ones if they even read his twitter so here's the article brian ashcraft yesterday at 6 30 in the morning over the past few years hideo kojima's twitter accounts have been tweeting in japanese his native English, his native language, and English, his second language. While it's unclear whether or not Kojima is doing the English tweeting himself, he's not a native speaker. That's known. He's not an English speaker. There are mistakes in his English tweets, and for a non-native speaker, that happens. No biggie. The effort is appreciated. There's nothing wrong with small mistakes, but it's problematic when mistranslations lead to confusion or inadvertently tick people off. Like Jason Schreier. 
In the past month, there have been two poorly translated English tweets that haven't been a good look for Kojima. Again, it's unclear if Kojima himself has been tweeting in English or delegating the responsibility to staff. This September 13th tweet, for example, rubs people the wrong way, especially the part about him becoming independent. So this was September 13th, September 12th. Hideo Kojima's English account writes, 12-16-2015, I became independent. No office, just a tiny room, no staff, no machines, nothing. All I had was this KJP logo, notepad, and pen, and my own PC. I started to work on the concept while recruiting staffs. Finding office and game engine had dream and connection. That's all. Again, I don't know if it's because I like him as a developer and I have no negative stigma attached to him, but I don't look at that as anything bragging. He's saying that he he, he left Konami and this he, he, he left everything he knew to start something fresh. I don't understand like the negativity attached to this. Um, they go on to say the official ToeJam & Earl account had this to say, and they retweeted it saying, you really pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. Like, Okay, that's like, are you arguing that it's like one of the Kardashians saying that they, uh, what is it, the the Jenners, right? Kylie Jenner was the first self-made billionaire under whatever. And you're like, well, self-made billionaire, you know, not that you didn't have a million connections to get started, not that she didn't have a leg up on everybody or 10 legs up on everybody. Sure. But it doesn't really change the fact that she's a billionaire, I guess. I mean, I, I agree. I don't think she should say it, but I don't see him here saying I started with nothing except literally saying he started with nothing as far as like his equipment like yes he had contacts and yes he knew he was going to be okay he knew he had contacts at sony and everything he was going to be fine uh the uh, the kotaku article goes on to say though but the original japanese tweet was different kojima doesn't write that he's become independent instead the original tweet was more matter of fact Quote, the company was established on December 16th, it reads. He goes on to write that he didn't have a proper office, but a small temporary one. There was no staff, no office, no equipment, nothing. I only had a Kojima Productions logo, a notepad, and a pen, and my own computer. While coming up with the project plan, I recruited staff and looked for an office and a game engine. But I wasn't at zero, because the only thing I did have were a dream and connections. Kojima didn't say he was going independent, but rather setting up the company. He acknowledged that he has connections. Of course he does. He's Hideo Kojima. Okay. So that's, again, people like see a headline and they roll with it. They don't read any further into it. In other Japanese tweets, he has referred to Kojima Productions as, quote, the newly established reborn Kojima Productions and Death Stranding as, quote, the first work I've made since going independent, end quote. The verb uh, dokuritsu suru means to go independent or, quote, to strike out on one's own. It's a neutral verb and doesn't have the same nuance that the phrase, quote, going indie, end quote, would be in English. Kojima has struck out on his own, which means he has become easier in Japan's corporate controlled game industry over the past decade. In English, indie has certain connotations that are certainly hard to apply to one of the most famous game creators on earth whose new game is bankrolled by Sony. But in Japan, no matter who you are, it still takes courage to leave the comfort of a big corporate job and start your own company. And so that's really what he's saying. He's saying he's independent from Konami. He's independent from the corporations. He's on his own. It's not, it's not, he's not saying indie as he's like a small indie developer trying to make it by. But again, people just assume that when something happens in Japan that it's, hap it's the same as how it works here. It's, a, it's half a world away. Like, open your horizons, please. <laughs> I mean, geez, give me a break. Um... So, uh, Kojima seems more interested in calling Death Stranding a Hideo Kojima game for a guy who claims that 70% of his body is made of movies. Every film director uses a similar slugline for their pictures, whether it's a film by Quentin Tarantino, 
a Michael Mann film, a Spike Lee joint, or John Carpenter's Halloween. Uh, again, yes, and it's an advertising thing. Putting his name on the box will help it sell, right? And so that's the point, is that it's an advertising thing. It'll help it sell. So then he comes out with a tweet, though, saying, look, I don't just put my name on the box to sell it, though. If my name's on the box, I guarantee you a certain level of quality. Okay. Okay, that's it, right? That's it. That's dead and done until people start misreading it. Um, so we talked about this other tweet again. This was the one that said, the declaration of me doing concept, produce, original script, original story script setting, game design casting. That's what the English tweet was. So the Japanese tweet explains that a Hideo Kojima game is a statement that he is involved, or kakawaru, with all these different facets, not that he's doing them all himself. He's not discounting the work of others. Instead, he's explaining that the label, a Hideo Kojima game, is essentially a seal of approval to show he's taking part on multiple levels. He does not do this for games he merely conceives, designs, and produces. So like Lords of Shadow, Castlevania. Castlevania Lords of Shadow was not a Hideo Kojima game. Even though he oversaw production, he helped with it. They didn't put. They could have put his name on the box. I mean, they put the Fox logo on the back, but I th did that use the Fox engine now as before? I don't know. It might have used. It might have used like something, you know, technology sharing or something. But they didn't put Hideo, a Hideo Kojima game on the front. And again, that was Konami anyway. So even if it wasn't like it was Kojima's decision to do that. Um, and so then there was this person, if you want to know what Kojima was actually trying to communicate in that tweet, here's my attempt at a demangled translation. Uh, and for the record, I've been credited as the lead designer, writer, producer on a team project or two, but have never supported the idea of autorism. Um, a tourism. The problem is that most people are only reading his English language tweets, so it's understandable how Kojima could come off poorly. And to be fair, it's not their fault. Likewise, Kojima needs to cut some slack for non-Japanese language tweets. Kojima's account is sending out English tweets to connect with a larger audience, but due to mistranslations, unfortunately, he might end up alienating some of it. That I'll agree with. Uh, in fact, one of the tweets that said this English tweet is garbage was retweeted by the English tweeting account. So even... It's got to be Kojima. I'm pretty sure it is him. And I think he's putting his tweets into like Google Translate or something. And they're coming out weird and kind of broken. And so, yes, that's not good. And it's not the average person's fault for reading that and going, ah, it kind of turns me off. But what I don't understand is how a gaming journalist will do that and not understand the context and not understand the difference between a Japanese person and a Japanese culture and, and the U.S. culture. And it's just give me a break. You know, I, it's just that that's easy peasy stuff, man. Come on. that th This is absolutely understandable. And then and then to pull back on it when people start challenging him and, and the people challenging him are all just getting destroyed by his Twitter followers, which is what usually happens. So because people are actually liking the comments that are against what he has to say, he's like, I'm just kidding. Wow, you're getting really defensive. Hey, whoa, you're getting really defensive there, pal. I'm just saying, I'm just joking, you know, which is like the exact defense that a lot of people use that they rail against, you know. Why? Well, hey, you're getting awful defensive. I'm not being racist. Defensive. It's just funny that uh, it's just funny that he didn't know the difference. And 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 I'm disappointed in Trier in this one. I do like about 50% of his content. I just did that story last week about uh, Nicalis, uh, and he broke it down with great sources, and he had great information, and it was well done. This this just I mean again, it's just a tweet. It's not like he wrote a story about it, but I don't know. Just a joke, I guess. <laughs> but I don't know, Schreier, you know better, man. Come on, be better than that. 
All right, and that is it for the stories today. Let's talk about our... Let's see, we got our game of the week, our pickup pile of the week. All right. All right, so we have our game of the week. So our game of the week this week is for PS1 again. I'm sticking with the PS1 theme. The 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 theme of this or the game of this week is Armored Core for the original PS1. Armored Core is a third-person action mech simulator uh, with full customization. I mean, you can make tank legs, you can have regular legs, you can have jetpacks, and it's all based on weight. So like you'll pick a heavy frame, and a heavy frame can hold maybe four or five rocket launchers but a heavier frame uses your replenishable energy faster. And so it's all about balancing. Do you want to be a fat-ass heavy tank, or do you want to be a really fast-moving aerial jetpack-boosting mech that doesn't have as much armor? And so you fully customize it. What I like about it is it has missions, and the game's pretty unforgiving, I'll say, too. Like, if you don't save before a mission and you fail the mission, you don't start over. You failed the mission and you lose the money that would cost to repair your core, which is what they call the mechs in the game, your core. And so uh, you repair the core and uh, and you lose a lot of money and then you can't upgrade your core more and it's very quickly you sink into the crapper. Uh, very, very fun game. It still holds up. And I know this sounds really dumb since I've never driven a huge mech, but I always felt like this game was the most accurate to what it would feel like to drive one. You still feel heavy. You still feel clunky when you're, you're clomping around. But you also can move, and, like, you can kind of skate around, and you can even have, like, plasma weapons. Like, you get a plasma sword, so you could actually be a melee mech, a melee core. Super cool stuff. I, I, this is this is a, a game that f spawned many, many sequels. Um, the PS2 era is probably the best. Um, Armored Core 2, Another Age, and 3 are probably the best Armored Cores in the series. But Armored Core is very excellent. And then they added an arena mode too so there's like you start off at the bottom rank of this arena and you fight other cores in this arena and eventually you climb the ladder to be the number one core that fights it's just it's cool man you're always customizing and changing your builds up it's um it's pretty awesome uh i'll tell a quick story about armor core 3 which is one of my favorite armor core games on ps2 so there was this one mission it was really cool it was like uh the mission was some sort of like ship had sunk in the arctic or something and it was frozen over and you had to go into the ship, destroy the cargo that was there so no one else could recover it, and then escape. So the top of the ship is frozen. In, like, the whole top of the ship is underwater, except for, like, the exhaust pipe is at, as, at the top. So you go in the exhaust pipe, and you go all the way down. And so essentially, you're in this underwater mission. And you've got a time limit because, you know, the ship's about to blow up or the, hull, the water's about to crash through or something. And so you have to go all the way to the bottom of the ship fighting, you know, guard robots, all this other stuff. You blow up the cargo, and then you got to get out with, like, a minute left. And I was getting all the way back out, and then at the very end, you have this large shaft you have to fly up. It's like the exhaust shaft, so you have to just kick on your boosters and just pray you have enough boost to make it out. And uh, I had like, it was like 20 seconds left on the thing, and I get to the thing, and I, I straight start boosting up. And as I'm boosting, I hit the analog stick a little bit, and I kind of start drifting to the left a little bit. And I hit the wall, but you can still skirt up the wall, so I'm like, okay, I'm fine, I'm fine. At the very top of the exhaust port, there's this little lip. And so I get all the way to the top while sliding against the wall, and my head catches the lip, and I, like, hit it. And then my boosters run out, and I slowly start fa falling back down the tube as the timer's ticking down. 
and and it just like slowly 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 and then i blew up and i failed the mission but it was just like i could see that happening and it was it had this really cool sense of you know and then the next time i went back in i just changed my mech to be really agile with lots of boost and then i was it was no problem that time but i just took my mech in without modifying it and i took my core in there and it was whoo it, it was it was great uh that's uh that, that's a fun game now this wasn't the original armored core that was armored core 3 but armored core has very similar missions and, and it is fun so if you have a ps1 or a ps3 because all ps3 systems do play ps1 games that's your the more you know moment of the day then uh yeah that's what uh that's what uh you should play you should play that All right, and then our pickup pile of the week. Oh, lordy begordy, we got some stuff. Uh, okay, so I picked up Link's Awakening for the Switch. I'm very excited to play this, even though I hear it has some frame rate issues. I'm going to give it a good go. Waiting to play it on my trip, though. This is a plane ride game, if I've ever seen one. Uh, short and sweet, but it's fun. It's a Zelda game. It'll keep my brain occupied to take my actual legitimate phobia of flying out. Um, I picked up on PS1, Runabout 2. So this is the sequel to... Uh, Felony, is it called Felony 11 or Felony something on the PS1? And uh, so Runabout 2, it's kind of a very uncommon uh, racing uh, game on the PS1. I was at Start Over Games in Oshkosh, my buddy Rob's store that, uh, full disclosure, I am a co-owner of. Uh, I picked up a few Master System games. I got Zaxxon 3D, and I picked up Choplifter. I love Choplifter, man. I, I absolutely love that game. Uh, so I got those two for my Master System. And then this beauty, who lordy, we got a mint inbox Castlevania 4 for Super Nintendo traded in. And I didn't have this in my collection yet because I don't love Castlevania 4 and I don't like that it's a remake and I don't like how, I don't know, it's not my favorite. I prefer Bloodlines, I prefer Dracula X even to this game. I know people think I'm mental when I say that. But uh, I did realize it is a Castlevania game and I should have it. And then this one came walking through the door and I was like, uh, yes, please, uh, check, please. And I bought that. And then I had a few more of the RPGs left over from that huge collection that I bought last week. But I picked up a copy of Dual Hearts on PS2. This is a really strange kind of action RPG. As close as you're going to get to a Legend of Zelda game on PS2. Remember how I said that on PS1 with Alundra last week with our Game of the Week. Uh, Monster Rancher 3. I don't know. Monster Rancher definitely gets worse with every version that comes out. But I love Monster Rancher. And I love Monster Rancher 1 and 2. So Monster Rancher 3. Not to be confused with Monster Hunter, but also another good game involving monsters. And then lastly, picked up a third-person stealth action game called Red Ninja. This is an uncommon PS2 game as well. Um, it's it's fun. You play as a scantily clad, uh, busty Red Ninja woman. <laughs> but it's got a tenuous uh, angle to it. There's a lot of stealth to it. It's pretty fun. It's a good action too. Good controls. Uh, pretty fun. And then lastly, so the the banger of the uh, of this dealio is uh, so I picked up at Powers Comics. I went in, you know, just to buy my weekly comics. You know, I'm not expecting to drop a ton of cash here, you know, and that's how it goes. And that's how I feel when people come to my store. I think <laughs> they they come in, they're like, "Oh, I'm just gonna talk to Greg for a minute." Oh, I just spent five hundred dollars. Well, I went to Dave Powers talking to my boy had to rub it in that i was going to beat him in fantasy week this week which i did by the way dave suck it and they have a 9.2 graded amazing spider-man 300 first appearance of venom <laughs> just sitting there like come on i just picked up the first appearance of carnage like two weeks ago of course i'm gonna buy this of course and they had a 9.6 
upgraded version of the same comic, but it was twice as much. I said, you know what? The hell with it, man. For half the price, I'll take a 9.2. I don't give a crap. Um, so that makes me happy, though. That's uh, that's some staples in my collection that I needed to have. Amazing Spider-Man. First appearance of Venom. First appearance of Carnage. My giant size X-Men. These are ones I had to I had to get. So pretty happy about that. Um, yeah. And uh, so that is it. That is my pickup pile of the week. That is my game of the week. And then lastly, we have a listener question. So the listener question. Let me bring it up here. Um, so this, this question comes up. Do you think old or long unprinted games will one day escape licensing hell in the future? Or will games licenses eventually become publicly accessible? Uh, well, no, it's the U S is so weird. You know, we're, we're a very litigious country. And so copywriting thing is very taken very, very seriously here. And it probably should rightfully so. On the flip side of that, Disney has also been really working hard to get rid of the free use and copyright things and to let them hold over. I mean, by this time, things like uh, Batman and Superman, I think, would have been free use. It's been that long. Uh, Or they would be coming up soon. Uh, So, uh, no, I don't think those will ever escape licensing hell because they'll always be held by those licensees. As long as they do something with it and stay up on the patents. If a company completely dissolves and the rights become free use, I could maybe see that. But yeah, for the most part, unfortunately, like the U S just very different that way. And there's not a whole lot you can do. It's uh, not much is going to change when it comes to how we look at copyright. And in fact, it's getting a little more strict because companies want to hold on to their properties longer as companies exist longer. You know, when they made that initial rule that I don't think they expected companies to be along more than one or two generations, <laughs> you know? And so now we've got companies that have been around for five to 10 generations. And, and, uh, but I do think that something like Mickey Mouse should always be Disney's property. I mean, it, I, I don't see why it would ever become free use. I don't think it should. Same with Mario. I mean, Mario is Nintendo's property. If Nintendo's around, it should be Nintendo's property. I, I just do feel that way. Um, just like if game trades always around, I should be able to keep the name of my store, I guess, you know, and I know it's not quite the same thing, but that is how I look at it. So, uh, anyway, that is the podcast. Thank you everybody for listening and watching. If you don't have one, if I don't have one next week, then I'll see you in a few weeks when I get back from my trip. Um, if I have one next week, then I'll talk to you then. Uh, don't forget to subscribe on YouTube, youtube.com slash drop rate. Follow us on Twitch, twitch.tv slash the drop rate. And of course you can listen to this. If you're listening on SoundCloud or on iTunes or on Spotify, you can listen to them on any other way. So if you're on Spotify, listen on iTunes or SoundCloud. And if you subscribe on whatever your favorite platform is, that helps me out a lot. So you get notifications of when I go uh, with a new podcast up. And uh, yeah, and, and we have some fun with it. So thank you as always for listening and watching. I'll talk to you again later. Have a good time. I hope you have a good week. I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.